Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Pascal Eau Claire, and you're in for a real treat. Pascal's a very well-known Dharma and meditation teacher. He teaches retreats all over the world and teaches locally with True North Insight in Montreal. Pascal is extremely knowledgeable about the Buddhist teachings, but maybe more importantly, he embodies the practice more authentically than maybe anyone I've ever met. Our conversation today touched on his background, how he got into practicing meditation and teaching, and we got a couple of interesting stories from some of the long retreats he sat. I got his take on how he thinks meditation really helps people live happier and healthier lives. I asked him what people can do to enjoy the benefits of meditation, even if they don't have hours and hours and weeks and weeks to spend on retreat. I got his perspective on the secular mindfulness movement, including some recent challenges from the scientific community suggesting that meditation teachers should have better sensitivity to the mental health problems that can sometimes arise in meditation. And finally, I asked him about his commitment to social justice and how that shows up in his practice and teaching. You can find lots more info on Pascal at pascaleauclair.org. And there's lots of info on Mindspace's mindfulness meditation classes at mindspacewellbeing.com. You can also visit presencemeditation.ca for info on the drop-in classes available at our meditation studio. Before getting to my conversation with Pascal, I just wanted to announce uh, that for the next episode of the Mindspace podcast, I'm going to be interviewing Colin DeYoung. Colin is an old friend and a neuroscientist at the University of Minnesota, and he specializes in the study of personality. He's got lots to say about personality and well-being and mental health and all that kind of stuff. So really looking forward to that. Okay, so now let's get to my conversation with Pascal Eau Claire. Okay, I'm here with Pascal Eau Claire. Welcome, Pascal. Hey, Joe. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Good. It's a nice, uh, nice setup we have here. It's really nice to have you here. Pascal, why don't we start by you just telling us like who you are? I know I mentioned in the intro that you're a meditation teacher and a Dharma teacher, um, but what does that mean exactly? What do you do? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, mostly what I do, uh, Joe, is I, um, I go on retreat with people. That's mostly what I do. Is uh, So I go somewhere. Usually it's close to a city, you know, an hour drive from a city in North America or in Europe and uh, gather with a group of people who signed up for a retreat and they'll come and be in silence for maybe, I don't know, maybe a, a long weekend or a week long or two weeks and we'll be uh, together exploring the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist practices, meditation. So in a way, you know, I just do nothing with people for a number of days in a beautiful rural rural environment and um yeah do this i also teach in uh, in town mostly here in montreal and so people come for an hour an hour and a half class and we practice um we practice uh just paying attention it's an amazing thing like i, I something that really touched me touches me yeah to be with a group of people and just um, pay attention 
I, I think it's a kind of a strange and beautiful thing to do. Usually there would be, um, you know, like um, if you pay attention, it's because like in this case, ideas are, are being shared or there's music or a movie or a play or dance and people come together and they pay attention to something, you know, some kind of entertainment, we could say. And in the classes and the retreat, we come together, we pay attention, but there's nothing <laughs> being presented except, you know, you know our psyches and uh, nature you know the life of the senses and uh, it's quite remarkable that people can do that come together and offer attention offer presence to themselves and to the space almost so for people that are less familiar with the practice of meditation, why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> I know. This is so strange. I don't know. I'm always, <laughs> I've been practicing for 20 years and I'm still kind of wondering. But no, I do know. I do know. Because as we sit, let's say that's the form, as we sit and we pay attention, um, first uh, the mind might pacify itself, you know, like calm itself. And uh, also we'll notice how the, the psyche behaves, you know, what, what it does, you know. So if m you and I and the people listening to us, we were just to stop for a few minutes and say, let's do nothing and just pay attention. What would happen to us, you know? One of us would start worrying about later, today, this or that. And another of us m maybe would uh, start thinking about earlier this morning or something of the past and... You know, and and so by just doing this, we notice what are our habits of mind, and are they really useful? Are they uh, liberating or entangling? Is one of the ways that I think about this. And um, another thing that happens, I think, is a kind of a softening of the heart. So in just paying attention, attention like this, there's something that open opens up. You know, it's some maybe appreciation for the quietness. Or maybe compassion for the confused mind or agitated mind. We can be touched by the way we live. That's quite remarkable. Yeah, so I definitely want to ask you more about what kinds of skills uh, and perspectives you cultivate in your own practice and you teach others. Um, if it's okay with you, I would ask you first how you got into doing this yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So um, there's two different stories, two different ways to tell what happened. So I'll, I'll give you both versions and <laughs> you'll see that it's somewhere in between or both. And so in uh, the first kind of uh, quick, funny version of this is I'm traveling in uh, Asia 20 some years ago with uh, my partner at the time, adorable man. Uh, but we've been traveling for two or three months uh, in India, Nepal, Thailand and uh, 24 hours a day together, seven days a week you know, and at some point I just want a break, you know, so I'm saying to my partner, why don't you go to the next place where we're, you know next city we're going to visit a couple of days earlier, I'll stay here and then when I get there you'll show me around, And but it doesn't work, you know, my partner saying, no, we came together, we're staying together and so I'm trying to find a way to have a little pause, you know. And so we meet a traveler who just uh, is coming out of a, 
retreat in the monastery in the south of Thailand. And so she said, oh, you can go there. You'll be in silence for 10 days and they'll teach you meditation. So I just thought, oh, in silence for 10 days, you know, I'll be alone and we'll be together. You know, like uh, we're all going to get what we need. <laughs> so I said, Anthony, what about going there? You know, that's a cultural thing to do. And and uh, and he said, yeah, let's go. Free food, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and also being curious. So... So we found ourselves at uh, that retreat center and I was able to be alone for a few days with uh, him. And it was good for both of us. And after we sat a number of retreats in the years that came after him. So that's one of the answers. Do you, do you want the other one? Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the other one is a little bit more dramatic. Um, a year and a half prior to that trip and that retreat, uh, I learned, and I was 25 years old at that time, I learned uh, that I was HIV positive. At that time, that year, there was no um, good medication yet. So it was definitely like um, like a life uh, death sentence. Is that the way to say it? And so, uh, you know, I was 25 years old, didn't have so many uh, inner resources and uh, was very confused and uh, afraid. And it it didn't look really good what was going to happen was you know the loss of health and you know it was um, pretty bad what was happening with people with AIDS at that time I'd seen a few friends uh, you know get sick and die and um, so so this was uh, the situation and so I needed some uh, help figuring out you know, like how to live with that disease and uh, the stigma around it. And uh, my self-identity was very shaken to the core. You know, I thought I was youth, health, and eternity, you could say. And I was learning that I was none of these. And uh, the uncertainty of life was very, very much revealed. I was really aware that I didn't know what was, you know, how I would, accompany myself in that uh, adventure so that was part of what uh, led us to traveling uh, in Asia it was a choice to uh, you know I wanted to you know see the world and live and maybe more intensely knowing that it was going to turn uh, ugly if I can say it like this so there was this so the call for like meditation going on a retreat this um, a sense of like there might be an answer there no you know you see uh, monks and nuns with the shape that these archetypes are really powerful and to be in thailand there and to know that there, there was something that seems secret some secret teaching some secret ways to meet i don't know life the mind so i was curious about this definitely okay and so you're saying the the truth is somewhere in between. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know how things are complex. I was really, uh, I really needed the break <laughs> from traveling with my partner, which I will repeat here is an adorable man. Uh, we haven't been together for many years now, but uh, he's a is a good friend, somebody that is very dear to me, and uh, so it's more like the dynamic of two people being together a, a lot. So this was true, and there was something, another kind of undercurrent, another uh, thing going on where I was looking for uh, 
I don't know if it, you know, some 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 path, some uh, tools, some way to understand. I think I was more than tools. I think maybe there was a sense, and people have that. I think in them, certainly others listening will uh, recognize. Some will recognize this. You know the. A different view look like there must be another way to understand it or another another way to enter in relationship with such a stressful thing mm -hmm. and so this is a very very deep question so the annoyance on one hand <laughs> and the search the quest on the other and then how did that uh, turn into you becoming a teacher and what did you have to go through to be empowered yeah. by the insight community mm-hmm So there was this retreat, and after this retreat, uh, yeah, my partner and I were really uh, were touched deeply by uh, the practice, both the practice and the teachings, kind of what you could call the Buddhist philosophy, and also the actual technique of paying attention in a non-judgmental way to what is happening here now. So that kind of uh, way to develop... Uh, stability of mind and acceptance i was really uh, deeply moved by this I, i recognized immediately that there was something in the technique and in the teachings you know how the dharma the buddhist teaching talks about um, that there is difficulties in life it's part of the fabric of reality that we are separated from what we want that there will be aging disease all this i could hear in a new way or like To me, that was a new message. Prior to this, I had thought maybe that, um, you know, if something went wrong, it was either my fault or somebody's fault. And now somebody was telling me, no, this is really part of life. And so it was opening the door to a level of acceptance that was extremely moving for me and healing. And so after this, uh, we both had the interest to sit more retreat. And at the end of that particular retreat, the first one, Somebody mentioned, so this was in uh, the south of uh, Thailand, near Suratani, um, at um, uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu's monastery, uh, Swan Mok. And there I heard at the end of the retreat, somebody talking about a three-month retreat. This was a 10-day retreat. Somebody was talking about a three-month retreat in Massachusetts, like just next to where I live, Montreal, five hours drive. And... I remember hearing this and recognizing, oh my Lord, you know, this is my next trip for sure. This is the next trip, the inner kind of uh, traveling. And my idea was really clear. I'm going to sit this thing. And, uh, you know, it took uh, almost two years, but I found myself uh, uh, maybe a year and a half later sitting the three-month retreat at IMS and then there was so there was a few 10-day retreats like this over the the year and a half that followed then the three-month retreat and then I was so interested in that practice and that study of human psyche so my psyche but also human psyche you know there's something very universal that I understand in this practice I'm I'm studying human nature and uh, the kind of setup I see it as a laboratory like so I'm going in this laboratory in the woods for three months and I have all day you know 14 hours a day to actually study the mind 
and I have good uh, guidance around this. So I did this and I ended up over the years doing maybe uh, 10 more of these. Uh, you mentioned IMS, just so yeah. just so everybody knows, IMS being the Insight Meditation Society? Exact, Insight Meditation Society in uh, Massachusetts, uh, um, in rural Mass- uh, Western Mass. And uh, there, people who had sat retreats and had re- sat long retreats, uh, Westerners, had created the center in the uh, 70s, um, and they were... Uh, offering uh, the same teaching they had received from their um, masters in Burma, in Thailand. And uh, and they had organized that three-month retreat where they would support you with, uh, you know, food, lodging, and guidance in, the, in silence. And so, uh, uh, yeah, so that's the place, which ended up being my, you know, uh, training ground as a, certainly as a, as a practitioner and later as a, as a uh, you know apprentice teacher or mentee being mentored by joseph goldstein one of the teachers there and um yeah so um a number of these long retreats actually one year after a few years of practice i had that dream i wanted to do um, a year-long silent retreat and being uh, in the partnership with anthony we talked about this as a couple and anthony said Pascal, it'd be okay if you went several times, one, two or three months, and you came back, you know, every... Uh, so that was kind of the com- compromise he was willing to do. So then I did my own compromise uh, and uh, did a year of sitting like... the. Th- I would sit the three months at the Insight Meditation Society, come back for Christmas. So I would be sitting from, uh, you know, September up, up till a few days before Christmas in silence go back home for Christmas. Then uh, maybe in February, go sit to two months in California, a Spirit Rock uh, Meditation Center, a center f- uh, created, founded by Jack Cornfield and others. Uh, same kind of uh, situation, you know, a uh, rural place where a bunch of people are together uh, practicing. So I would go and sit there two months, go back home for a month or two, then go back to another retreat, at one of these places or another place. After a year, I was so interested by the studies I was doing. I thought like, oh my God, it's the beginning. I'm beginning to calm my mind. I want, like now my mind is a little bit gathered instead of scattered, you know. And it's more laser-like, if you will. And now I'm starting to see things in a much more refined way. The quick behavior of the mind, you know, all kinds of movements of mind and heart. You know, reactivity, judgment, self-loathing, uh, self-aggrandizement, you know, all these movements and noticing the pain, the mistaken views that were uh, behind these attitudes. And so I decided to do a second year to which uh, Anthony agreed. And so there was a second year of this. And at the end of these two years of maybe six months of uh, silence and practice uh, a year, um, Joseph uh, Goldstein, the teacher at the Insight Meditation Society, and Jack Cornfield, the teacher at Spirit Rock in California, both said, Pascal, it would be good if you were uh, uh, to be trained to teach. So we'll do, you know, Joseph said, I'll take three years, three years with you and train you. And Jack said, I'll take four years, Pascal, with you and train you. And so I said, oh, but Jack, 
is inviting me, Joseph, etc. And they talked together and they decided to create a group of trainees. And so they did the four-year training with, uh, we ended up being 24 of us being trained to teach, um, you know, uh, what we call the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings and practices. What is it like to spend, you know, months at a time in silence? I mean, it's very different from day-to-day life here. Yeah. So the individual experience might differ. So I'll be representing my experience, you know. For me, it was definitely an amazing blessing. You're in a rural mass. Uh, let's say if we think of the three-month, always happens at the fall, the fall three-month retreat. And so you're in beautiful um, New England nature, you know, lakes and forest, uh, changing color. You actually have the luxury to watch... Uh, the color change in the trees day by day. You know, there's, there's nothing else happening than that. And so nature is very powerful. The sun, the rain, uh, time. Time opens up. People cook for you. Uh, there's a hundred people together in silence. So socially, it's easier to be uh, together, and at least for me, you know, in, in silence. Um, and then it's, a f- uh, you know, um, an alternation of uh, sitting and uh, sitting for 45 minutes of meditation and uh, then walking for 45 minutes in silence, inside or outside, and sitting again. Twice a a week, you'll have a 15-minute interview meeting with a teacher. Basically, they're checking your practice, you're reporting, I'm reporting on what's happening for me, and they might give instructions, you know, prescriptions, say, oh, be careful with this, um, and this, I remember, was really um, standing out because, you know, like I've been not talking to anybody, you know, for three days. And then I have like 15 minutes to actually have an exchange with a human being. And then I'm going back in silence. But still, I'm relational because there's 100 people, you know, where we have tasks to do, a few, uh, you know, maybe 45 minutes of work every day. So I maybe clean the pots and pans with others. We're in silence. But si- silence in this way is, is very much shared, you know. So I actually was sharing a room with somebody. I was, uh, And uh, we didn't speak. We didn't have the time to, to talk before the retreat started because maybe I came late or he did. So we did the three months in silence, and we developed a really beautiful friendship. He was really caring, um, you know, like waking up really early in the morning, he would like sneak out of the room so I could sleep a few minutes more, and at night I would practice late. I would come and be really careful. And this had a really uh, beautiful, like we shared a lot. And at the end of the retreat, you know, we talked and said, oh, in October, you know, you got depressed. You know, I was like, yeah, it was hard in October. <laughs> And he knew, you know, just from, you know, body language and the way we move and etc. So, um, and all these hours of, you know, discovering what it is like to be in a body, to be in a heart and mind and the way the heart and mind can behave and create so much trouble for oneself and the way it can also uh, be so uh, beautiful with itself, you know, it can you know, calm and curiosity and uh, joy and uh, benevolence, friendliness, when it's there, 
the reality is so different and this is amazing to discover that reality changes with mind states you know in hopelessness and uh, despondency if that's a word you know you know oh my god i'm stuck here for another two months you know and i'm i'm people are building careers and having families and buying homes and and participating in society and i'm there you know people cooking for me i'm doing nothing sitting on my ass all day you know so that's a mind state and another mind state is gratitude cannot believe i have i'm given this time to actually uh, detoxify this mind really take responsibility for what's happening in there and become starting to uh, the word is not the right word it's the one that comes to mind uh, to master maybe just make order clarify you know how is the best way for myself and for others to use this uh, mind you know instead of, uh, instead of uh, cultivating self deprecation or uh, arrogance you know um, you know what is the taste of humility of true humility you know so i really want to be there when it shows up you know i don't want to be too uh, occupied by other things so that's the laboratory there we were speaking earlier about you know getting together and paying attention that's kind of what you're doing when you're teaching and leading retreats and stuff this paying attention and and all the things you're talking about that the retreat opens up for you um, maybe you can flesh that out a little bit or unpack what you're doing in meditation and how over time that um, helps people and I don't know if we want to use the word sort of liberation or well-being or so what what are we actually doing when we're paying attention paying attention and how does that end up being helpful yeah yeah it's uh yeah it's a beautiful profound question there's there's actually many ways to answer this this question so I'll offer what uh, comes here spontaneously but um, so we just sit and we notice what's happening you know and uh, there's a chain of uh, mental qualities that are developed as we do just this so we pay attention paying attention something will start to stand out you know if, you know uh, I'll notice uh, either sounds or the quality of my mind you know the impatience the turbulence and this is often in insight meditation it's one way to describe uh, this practice the first insight we say is we notice that our minds are a little crazy i don't know if that's okay to use this word in this way you know uh, but you know you will just sit and say let's pay attention to you know just the quality of the air the temperature or the quietness in the room and then will be am i doing this right i don't know if i'm doing this right i should you know and the mind will and will this will be revealed the tendencies of the mind and so we'll get curious so we'll we'll go from being uh, duped by our mind states to becoming awake to them you know instead of just believing uh, you know impatience we'll start to feel the effect of impatience on the body mind uh, right now you know and if there happens to be uh, some kind of quiet listening then we might get interested in the kind of contentment that arises in just being there attentive 
suddenly I don't need to be somebody else, be further along. So it cuts through some illusions that I have. They actually the illusionary, mirage-like nature of these beliefs is revealed just by that. For me, that's very powerful. So I sit there, like I think I have so many things to do today, and and uh, you know, and I should be somebody else, and uh, this and that. And I sit and just pay attention, and suddenly it's full. And so when I go back to that belief or the things to do, maybe I'll be a little bit more free from the grasp of these thoughts, you know. So I pay attention something will stand out so it will activate curiosity in my mind and curiosity in time will bring some kind of uh, enthusiasm or contentment something like this and this will lead to the calming of the mind that it was scattered and busy occupied preoccupied in all kinds of ways the mind will calm because it'll be content interested in what's here and in this way i'll see more clearly uh reality so that's kind of a fast uh, version I give you. Uh, the reality is much more messy than this. You know, I get lost, doubt comes, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm losing my time. Da, 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 da. But slowly I get to clarify how I'm living, how I'm being. Um, so that's one way to, to talk about this. Just a follow-up question on that. Um, what's wrong with beliefs? What, what, why this uh, skepticism about reality? <laughs> yeah. I mean, beliefs, I mean, we, there's plenty of beliefs. They're, 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 I think they're useful until we discover that they're actually hindering in a way, you know. Um, for example, if I believe that um, something material may, may be, will bring me complete happiness. Then I'll get really greedy. I'll want to get that thing. I'll be stressful. It'll create a feeling of lack. That uh, completion, fullness, is when I finally get this thing, you know? And I could actually, it could actually play with my kind of uh, integrity, values, ethics. Wanting this thing, believing that it's going to satisfy me, uh, believing it so much, I might actually start, I don't know, lying to get it. Or, you know, being rough to move ahead, to get this thing. And once I get it, I might discover that it's not that actually satisfying. I don't know if I'm touching on something for somebody who's listening here, you know. But, oh, that relationship, that material thing, that uh, status, whatever it is, you know, actually doesn't provide so much because it's still a little unstable and, you know, so actually I want to work on these beliefs earlier, early on, you know, check out what I'm uh, projecting on things. And uh, uh, so that's just an example. And so if I know deeply that there will be disease, for example, in my case, I mean, in our case, there will be disease, there will be sickness, yeah, then maybe... I can actually take care of health, but I can let go of some of the fear that sickness will come because it will come. And so then I can be freed from sickness, not because it doesn't happen, but because I'm not fearing it anymore. And and this is deep stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
and I can learn to live in this life. So for me, for example, with the HIV that uh, we, we, we talked about, I could live, and I did live for a while under this belief that if I didn't have that disease, my life would be totally fine, you know. This belief, it seemed like it was telling me about happiness, you know. Happiness is not having this thing, which makes a lot of things very complex, you know. And that belief is stressful. I didn't know that. I thought, you know, it was that fantasy, you know, was helpful in my life. Like I knew reality. But actually looking at this, that belief is, I found out is not true. That I can actually be with HIV, this uh, disease, you know, and meet it. And actually it's an amazing, uh, uh, it's an amazing thing that is happening. It uh, There's nothing that's been a better teacher than this thing. And in terms of heart opening, in terms of humility, in terms of uh, considering others, it's uh, it's actually a, a really, really uh, amazing thing. And so I find in myself that carrying the disease in this way is helpful for me, helpful for others. It's not like I don't take care of my health anymore. It doesn't, uh, you know, hinder that. I take really good care of myself. But I hold it uh, differently. And by paying attention, I was able to clarify this. Oh, I'm not holding this well. You know, there's another way to hold this. That's kind of a revolution of the mind and heart we're talking about. Yeah, it's a really nice example, a nice illustration of how you're bringing your practice to your experience. And I do want to ask you about a couple other examples in a minute. Um, what stri- it strikes me in how you're talking about all this that you're not appealing to any spiritual um, beliefs. You're not. There's obviously no deities here. We're not talking about reincarnation. Um, you're talking of ve- you know very simple language, um, almost sort of psychological. Um, are you? Is what you're talking about Buddhist? Are you a Buddhist? <laughs> um, are you a monk? Like, how do you locate these teachings and and what you do as a teacher on a day-to-day basis in the sort of traditional context? Yeah. So I'm definitely not a monk because, you know, I would have uh, shaved hair and wear a robe. So listeners don't see this, but I'm in urban, (laughs) you know, lay person clothing. And uh, I, I have a partner. I'm in a relationship. Monks and nuns are celibate. Um, and uh, yes, so not a monk. I'm a, a lay person. I, I, it's these um, in French. It's etiquette. These uh, identities, labels. labels. I'm. Uh, I, it, they're useful to some extent, you know. But I can't say that I recognize myself. Like I'm not. I wouldn't define myself as a lay person. I'm a human. I'm a person. <laughs> I wouldn't define myself also personally as a Buddhist. Although my behavior and thoughts and things I do really kind of indicate that I'm a Buddhist, <laughs> you know, but I'm uh, I'm not that interested in that, you know. I'm interested in, uh, you know, uh, well-being, in uh, being a better whatever, you know, son or a better uh, neighbor or uh, citizen, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I'm interested in uh, in. Uh, feeling more at ease in the world I live in and being able to contribute 
so in this way uh, you know it's maybe more humanistic or <laughs> some, something like this it happens that the buddhist teachings uh, are awesome in this way you know they really serve that purpose really well uh, and so uh, i i haven't found something uh, a body of teaching and practices that is so powerful and so um, it seems to me accessible you know like uh, i don't feel religious uh, others uh, might and do and it's it's good there's many ways i think to um, meet and use these practices and uh, it's just for oneself to uh, determine to, to um, yeah does that answer a bit i think it does yeah so i want to ask you about a couple of the stories we've talked about the first one you're at home one evening you've got whatever to do you're sure it's a busy evening like any other the phone rings and it's some sort of um, customer service rep from Videotron and you know she wants to take up some of your time to review your file with them and make sure you're happy and ultimately there is a business case for why she is doing this and using your time for that and I think you mentioned just that you know you were a little irritated by being interrupted in this way and that you worked with that in a in a way that's I think quite unusual um, relative to how I might or somebody else might receive that call so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that <laughs> well so first I, I want to say that maybe I disclosed to you the best part <laughs> of my practice <laughs> and maybe I'm, I'm not maybe I know that I'm not uh, even you know that it's more messy than this and I get caught all the times in all different kinds of ways in all kinds of situations you know and and it's not the, the best version of me that uh, people uh, you know have to encounter um, but in a case like this one what comes to mind when I hear you uh, uh, describe this is in the development of practice there is um, you know wisdom what is wisdom there's so many kinds of wisdom uh, and so there's one particular kind of discernment that we talk about in this practice is the recognition for opportunities for practice. And so one of the ways for me uh, being triggered by uh, not getting what I want sometimes in uh, in these kinds of uh, phone calls or, you know, uh, you know, as a customer of some sort of some institution or corporation you know, I try to recognize the opportunity I have for, for practice when I'm, uh, uh, you know, on the telephone, for example, with, with somebody or, you know, if I have to take a plane and the plane is canceled and it's messy at the airport, you know, I'd like to remember, Pascal, this is an opportunity for you to practice what you, your values, which I think you say to people or like to think that you value patience, you know, respect, care, clarity, you know, uh, all this. So, uh, so I, I do want to live, I think, in a friendly world, you know, so how do I do this? This is hard work in a way, you know, but I'm happy that because of my practice of mindfulness, mindfulness, the word in the old language uh, in Pali is sati. It's also translated as remembering. So what I'm describing is that mindfulness is also a way to remember my values. So at the moment where I would snap, you know, 
maybe I'm able sometimes, the times I described to you, <laughs> I'm able to uh, remember, actually, I have values. I want to live in a safe world, you know, where I don't take any, uh, uh, you know, mindless moment to become abusive in some ways or rough, you know. And so the, uh, and then t that's what I find remarkable is that often there will be suddenly some joy that comes in my mind. <gasps> Opportunity for practice. It's my chance to create the world I want to live in, you know? So, you know, here I am at the airport. That's one of the latest uh, <laughs> opportunities that I had, you know, was Pascal, there's a human being here. You know, you want clarity, you want to get what you need or stuff, but let's do this and really work together because that is possible, you know. And often when I'm able to do this, it's so smooth and it's actually, there's a pleasant aspect to it, you know. Um, and then it changes my experience inwardly and outwardly. Um, and also, um, you know, I can experience another kind of joy which is the bliss of blamelessness, uh, as we talk about in the practice. So after, uh, you know, an encounter like this, where I can say like, wow, Pascal, you stayed calm, you stayed calm, you were clear, you know, you were, it's not about being nice, you know, it's not, I just want to be nice, and I want people to like me, it's not this, it's uh, a deep recognition that we are in a world that is, you know, uncertain, unstable, unreliable, things you know, appear like they're going to go this way and they go another way. You think your evening's going to go like this and then this happens, you know. And it's going to be like this pretty much for the whole ride. So how am I going to... Oh, here's an opportunity for me to practice not getting what I want. You know, and of course, sometimes I don't have that sati, that remembering. I just have like the mind that, uh, you know, contracts and reha reacts and, you know... Uh, and yeah, it's messy in this way. The other story that I wanted to ask you about, I attended um, a day-long silent retreat with you. I think it was in November, December. And um, it took a lot of arranging for me to be able to go. So I have little kids and I had to make sure that my wife had the support she needed to do what needed to be done on that Saturday. And I remember very well, it was like, I don't know, again, like late, November, early December, and like we had a really rough winter, as people might remember, and it started already. Like it was super cold, like unseasonably cold. It was even like snowing and even raining, and it was it was a miserable day. And I I think I walked or I took the metro, and I was very preoccupied with all of the little things that were going wrong in my day, like that I was cold, that it was tough to leave the house because my kids were, you know, in bad moods or whatever it was. I remember arriving and having to go up the stairs and take off my boots and being annoyed. Like, well, if I take my boots off here, my socks are going to get wet. I'm going to have wet socks all day. And being very, in a silly way, triggered by these little irritants. And maybe there was some sleep deprivation in my defense. Um, and then you showed up. Uh, and I think you sort of sat down at the front of the room and, and you, I think, switched on a mic and your voice was a little nasally. And you had this huge smile on your face and you said, hi, everyone. I just want to apologize. I'm, I'm sick. I'm, you know, my voice might be a little off today. And again, there was this smile and almost uh, a joyfulness 
in the imperfection of the moment. And I was just like, I don't know how he got there, but I want to be able to mm -hmm. cultivate that kind of equanimity. So how does that work? <laughs> well, I mean, for one thing, the, the weird kind of joy is like, the life never behaves, you know, the way we want to. The, the way that makes me laugh is like, of course, you know, that they have to lead the day long with a lot of people and and is the day that I feel all, you know. And so, and I'm touched by this, you know, the fact that life is not going to behave like I want, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's a, a very humbling and, uh, you know, and I think uh, with the practice and it's that practice of mindfulness of, uh, you know, daily practice and uh, paying attention, like I've noticed that having an opinion about things, you know, wanting things to be otherwise, you know, uh, uh, in the mind like this is is not a good way for me it's what we call in this teaching the second arrow so the first arrow of the sickness that day can't do anything about it the buddha apparently uh, had the bad back had the uh, you know uh, something at his feet uh, one of his foot was hurt uh, and uh, you know that's the first arrow you can't do anything about this you know you take care of it of course but the second arrow, why me, why today, I don't want this, this is really extra. And wow, the power of discovering that this is extra. And this is a whole layer of suffering that is, that is pretty miserable and, you know, painful. And this is extra. It doesn't have to be that. There's another way to go about this. And this we have to find in ourselves. So these three months, uh, two months, or three months, or all this, and you know, twenty years of practice, I'm starting to have some wisdom around that. Oh, this is how it is, Pascal. This morning, this is how it is, and having touched uh, the experience in an experiential way, having touched um, the beauty, of the feeling, the felt sense of compassion, instead of uh, grumpiness or you know, I've clarified some of that for myself, you know, that I could add a layer of judgment and wanting it to be otherwise and despising reality or this or that. And there's a way where there can be tenderness. And there can be tenderness and accompanying. Oh, how do you accompany somebody who's sick and is going to teach all day today? You know, so this. Another aspect that comes to mind is, uh, so walking, you were walking or traveling from uh, here where you live to that place where we were meeting I was traveling to so I've learned my teachers I've uh, taught me to actually not give so much interest to the content of my mind especially that kind of content like why is it like this is it oh my god the winter you know anticipation projection storytelling of all kinds and so my teachers have been so generous and skillful to show me that now we're walking what is the experience of walking here now so that's mindfulness huh? paying attention to what's happening instead of the kind of fascination i would have for a series of a train of thoughts that would be kind of miserable you know and not helping me not creative not solution finding it's it's more of a downward spiral kind of uh, 
way of thinking. And so I know for myself, probably as I was, as what was walking there, I can't remember, but actually do I have, I do have uh, memories of that day that you're describing. And I was walking there and I had a heavy pack because I had to bring stuff to implements, you know, props and things. And I was just saying, can we pay attention to, you know, the weight on the shoulders and the weight of the sick body, you know, like the kind of feeling and just, you know, is it possible to be friendly with this, to befriend this, to make space for that? Because it's like this anyway. You know, is it possible to allow this to be? And maybe can I notice something else? You know, the snow falling, wet, heavy snow that day was kind of beautiful. I could have easily missed it with my opinions and preferences. But to actually connect with that, you know, and the wetness on the forehead or whatever, you know. And so, so these are things I've learned to do. Yeah, so that's what comes to mind around this. Another teaching that you raised that I think is really interesting and relevant is the the tendency for us to personalize. Yeah. Oh, this is happening to me. Yeah. Why me? And and the sort of the sense of luck or unluck, and the universe has it in for me. Or okay, today is a good day for me, and whatnot. And and you often encourage me to to address the sort of the conditionality of all of that. I wonder if you can elaborate a bit yeah i'm really happy you ask because to me that is so central i have so much gratitude for this i'm listening to your questions and i have honestly really i have tears coming to my eyes and so there's the technique in mindfulness and uh, and, you know buddhist practices there's the the technique of meditation and uh, and the technique will lead us to change our views on things and there is the view also that we can talk about even before we start the, the, the practice. It's the view is the kind of a, what I mean by this is the way we look at the world, the way we understand it, our understanding of what's happening. And so something that I find so incredibly powerful and beautiful in this practice is the view. So the view is what is happening right now Yes, it's personal. That's one view, one way to hold it. And it's important to hold that view. And there's maybe another way to hold this, that this is uh, human nature. This is the kind of things that happens to human beings. And so um, it's, so in that the switch of view here is not, it's not so personal. So there's a reframing. Huh? So... Uh, it's not that uh, my bus is not arriving at the corner, you know, why me kind of thing. is, oh, being separated from what we want. This is such a human experience. And to me, what it uh, happens when I do this, I change that view or reframe things in this way. It's very liberating in some ways. It's very touching also because it, the, the, the feeling I have is I'm... The first view was, you know the world is against me or some kind of like the world against me kind of uh, understanding. And suddenly with this new view, I'm welcomed at the heart of human uh, nature. Like I'm at the center of it, like welcome in humanity. This is exactly it. And so it's the birth of compassion for me. (gasps) Look at that. Human beings, they want to feel good and they feel down. They want to be light 
and their heart is heavy sometimes. You know, they want a person to call back and the person doesn't call back. They don't want a person to call <laughs> and the person calls, you know. And all these, my mind now has been trained to see a lot of uh, the events of life like this. Ah, human beings, you know. And I don't want to kind of wash out, uh, you know, privilege of all kinds and, uh, you know, the differences that there are in society, you know, uh, around, uh, you know, uh, the different uh, identities we have and how it's valued in society or disvalued or uh, rendered uh, invisible. But I think it's also really useful to go to the universal aspect of being a human being, you know. And so for me, it could be my story about with my HIV But disease happen to human beings, you know, and uh, HIV is one of them. It does happen to human beings. It it seems to me that in the time frame that you have been teaching, there's been a major, major change in how meditation is viewed in Western society. And I'm not sure I have the right expression, but I... You know, sometimes talk about the secular mindfulness movement, particularly, you know, as it exploded around John Kabat-Zinn and MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. I'm curious what your perspective has been on this, like, major cultural shift and how you've experienced it as a teacher. Um, You're kind of famous. You're kind of a famous meditation teacher, um, and you're, in a way, a beneficiary of this um, transformation or this movement. Um, but of course I, you know, it may come with some downsides as well. So just what, you know, what's your perspective on, on what's happened? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I can tell you that I, I, I would never have seen, I'd never saw it coming. So I was practicing cause I needed these tools. I discovered that there were these tools. They seemed to be, uh, you know, they were not in the main culture at all. You know, I would tell my friends I was going on retreat doing what I was doing and there was not much resonance, you know, and, you know, in the conversations with stranger, what do you do? You know, I, I uh, even before teaching, but when I started teaching, saying I teach meditation, end of the conversation, you know, like the, most of the time the conversation would just drop flat yeah. Uh, you know, with probably a label of weird kind of a new agey, you know, like no resonance at all. And, um, and you know, when I started to uh, practice, I was the only person I knew was practicing in a way. Even here in Montreal, I, I was not uh, aware of other people doing this. It, but to me, it was resonating a lot inside of me. And so it was, I had to do it because it had sense. It made sense. It was helping me really very applicable for me, really changing my life, the view I had on it and the way I was holding it and, and living. And then when the, um, the offer came from Joseph and Jack to do the teacher training, it seems such like a weird kind of move to actually four years of teacher training to teach this thing that nobody's interested in and that doesn't make sense to anyone but still to me and the way I why I said yes was because I knew I would have four years of really high quality teaching close uh, and uh, you know uh, closeness to teachers wise beings and um, that 
you know, I did it mainly for my own practice, really. Uh, it was an opportunity for me to go deeper in my practice. But it, I didn't have uh, the idea that actually people would come and listen. Like, it, it would be very kind of rare and on the side, you know, very marginal. And then, you know, at the right time, where, where right at the same time as I finished my teacher training and started teaching, this suddenly... You know, Jan John Kabat-Zinn was already there doing its thing, but it was really not not really well known. And suddenly, this wave—I still can't explain what what how it came to be, except that to me, in a way, it makes sense because it is such an amazing tool. I knew that from for myself. I did, but I so didn't expect the popular culture and the corporation and the military and the you know prison system and the education and the university of montreal and the and mcgill you know to take it on and uh, in this way it's uh yeah it's uh, i'm uh, i'm almost speechless and in a way yeah it now it makes sense you know um now what i see that i find i'm curious about uh, a little worried about i don't know if it's maybe a strong word but uh is the um, there's a word for it a verb for it but the um you know the wits can be used at, in all kinds of ways by people who don't know what this is and kind of it's a trendy word now mindfulness and so i have friends who are psychologists and they say that every thing they receive in the mail everybody's like mindful this and mindful that and uh, and and so if there is some of mindfulness in there i'm happy you know, and and uh, but if it's just like um, a word that is used to um, entice people and it doesn't have the depth, then I'm really sorry because it's a very very powerful thing. I think all in all, it's a good thing, you know. And I think people are genuinely uh, interested in uh, learning about it, and those who want to teach it really want to teach uh, the real thing, you know. Um, yeah just be curious to hear your thoughts you know play social scientist for a second why do you think this has happened like what do you attribute this wave uh, arriving to well we we are you know all on or many of us on a, on a we want human beings we want to 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 be more at ease if that's the right way to say it in our world, we want to understand better how to be inside ourselves and with others. And we have a sense that there's another way to do it, that we might not do it the best way, you know. And so when something comes like this that says, look, you know, it's uh, it's kind of simple in a way. Huh? It's a simple practice that can have uh, some efficiency to it, you know, some... Uh, can really have an impact on one's life i think um, that's uh, interesting that you know would bring somebody's attention plus people doing it practicing uh, experiencing the benefits of it uh, reporting it to others saying it and you know and as a teacher i hear a lot of these uh, uh, people telling me like that made really an impact in you know my divorce or my uh, with my health problems or with the way I see things, you know, in so many ways. And, 
yeah, it's also accessible, you know, it, um, it doesn't need any props in a way, you know, it's, and it's also, uh, it's also part of our nature, you know, we, we are beings that have uh, attention to, we pay attention, we, we know these tools, they're there, I think they're actually in the, they were all within the culture, not just as valued, you know, and, uh, and, you know, people can recognize uh, intuitively or naturally that, you know, what's the best way you can be with a friend when they talk to you about their problems, to have opinion and judge them or give them a, a space, you know, to, and, uh, you know, allow them to be who they are, you know, it's that easy in a way. So your concerns about mindfulness being used as a marketing term um, is definitely part of the pushback that is that is gaining in momentum. I'd say there is a lot of you know pushback. Let's say from more traditional Buddhist communities that were concerned about the practice being adulterated for um, commercial interests, um, and also in the scientific community that the the data that has come out um, doesn't really justify all of the hype around the practice. And as you know, um, one very important figure in the pushback from the scientific community is Willoughby Britton. And she was just in Montreal, and I had her on the podcast. And uh, she's kind of raised the flag on meditation and mindfulness teachers' sensitivity to mental health issues in the practice. Uh, so um, meditation can be risky, that there can be some adverse experiences that arise. And Willoughby's argument is that we really need to be very sensitive to what these adverse experiences mean um, and interpret them in the appropriate way and know when some kind of more formal uh, mental health intervention is called for. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I was not uh, there when she uh, came to visit here in Montreal and offer, uh, her, uh, you know, teachings and uh, uh, the conferences and all this. Um, yeah, it's um, maybe I'll start very, very broadly. You know, life is risky. You know, eating is a very risky thing. You know, not eating also, by the way. <laughs> you know, breathing is an extremely risky thing. Um, sports are being a pedestrian, driving a car. You know, the, the, it's inherent in life. Uh, relationships, you know. Relationships can be uh, healing and, uh, and they can create uh, trauma in people and... Uh, so that's kind of a very large view that I have on this. And so, you know, probably meditation too, you know, uh, retreat, you know. Uh, so going on a retreat, meaning uh, retreating from our life, our habitual stimulation and relationships and going in silence is, uh, yeah, I can totally recognize it's, I would I would uh, advise uh, you know good mental health to do this as you know running a marathon for example 
it's not just like you dive into it you know you have to prepare and uh, so around retreats i totally recognize this and so you know i don't I don't try to present uh, i hope i don't i don't think i do uh, present um, for example retreats as it you know that's for everybody the best thing ever you know that's much more tricky than this you know so if somebody comes to tell me oh you know i'm not sure you know i hear you in the classes talk about retreat you know i'm not sure i totally want to honor this to me that might be a sign or something you know and if i feel that people just uh, need to understand what's actually happening in this then i'll reassure in a way you know but i would never want to say this is what you need to do to fix you you know <laughs> in some ways you know so it's a personal choice to go on a retreat um also try to keep it really open to people you know and say you know if after a day it's enough for you or you see you know that it's it's uh, perturbating in some ways you know and uh, then you 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 can always leave and it's uh, it could be a really wise thing to to see you know and people do that sometimes they realize pascal it's not the right time for me to be here too fragile you know and then uh, my job as a teacher is to help the person leave with a good sense a sense that they made the right decision that they could they take really good care of themselves you know um you know and in the classes uh, you know inviting people to uh, keep their eyes open if they want you know so it's not that as intense as it might be with the eyes closed or to feel free to move that they're not stuck in the body move out of the room if they want you know so kind of opening so then people can make their decision and track themselves and see what's good for themselves um, I think uh, a lot of these things can be extremely uh, helpful uh, I know in the prior converse conversation we had you and I I was telling you that uh, um, I see on retreat, for example, that when we uh, uh, go beyond the threshold, is that the, the word here, of uh, 45 people above, I find it the whole thing is a little bit more unstable. You know, like there's, there's anonymity, like people don't feel like, they might not feel like they exist so much. So, like I'm a little bit more, um, uh, less at ease when there's a higher level number of people. But under 45, I think... I always have a sense that we can create uh, some kind of intimacy, some kind of uh, people can feel seen and I can see them, they see me, you know, I know who's there. And um, I try to bring uh, lightness, so some kind of playfulness or humor, and I feel like it discharge a lot of the intensity that it can build in a really wholesome way, like it's not... Uh, it's discharging in a way that uh, help us stay in the process. Tons of friendliness and compassion. And uh, so like last week I was teaching and somebody was saying, Pascal, you're particularly kind of trauma sensitive uh, in the way you talk. You're using a very invita invitational language. If you feel like you could bring the attention towards your heart area. But if you don't feel like you know, you could stay with sounds, knowing that the heart area, the chest, maybe has more intensity of emotions there, you know. So th so things like this, it's actually been working really well for me. Maybe I don't hear about all the stories, but um, 
you know, the associations I have in my mind for my own practice, but also meeting hundreds of people a year, you know, uh, in classes and uh, retreats, is that it's a very, very powerful, beautiful practice. Um, and uh, so I do want to consider, the, you know, the dangers and the... But uh, not in an alarmist way. Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm checked out in some way, you know. But that's it's not been my experience. I've been in this, that field a lot. I spend a lot of time. I spend almost most of my time on in retreat space with people, having conversation, you know, talking about their practice. And uh, sometimes there's a level of stress, you know, that will come, you know, when we touch, you know, grief, deep grief, or you know, self-loathing, uh, or. Um, but the idea is to wake up to these mind state, you know, to see, uh, you know, their er erroneous nature. Uh, I'm thinking about self-loathing or to learn how uh, grief uh, can uh, uh, be accompanied with amazing, deep, great compassion. And people find this all the time. So the reports I hear uh, are a lot, a lot of this. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Now. I think um, part of what's been sort of motivating Willoughby's work is this awareness that because meditation has um, become accessible to so many people, there's such a broad range of things that can show up on a retreat. And there's some question of, well, how does a meditation teacher meet clinical presentation like dissociations psych psychotic breaks um severe depression panic attacks how does a uh, someone with all you know only dharma training in scare quotes um address these things and um you know i suppose i i would wonder if there's a sense of like you know western you know psychological science knows best about these things which yeah. may or may not be true but I do think it's important to mention that in all of your experience, you have met some of these, um, let's say, rarer, more uh, severe presentations. And yeah, maybe you can just speak to that and how um, you meet them and how, how your, uh, your teaching invites you to meet those things and to what extent it's different or similar to um, modern psychology um, and if and how to again how to reconcile these two perspectives like is it wrong to do what you know the Buddha said or what the Buddhist teachings say to do with these states um, or does psychology have it wrong or is there a meeting point between these things yeah yeah um, many of the teachers I work with are actually also psychologists I would, um, you know and when we were I was um, assisting or teaching on a three-month retreat, for example. We would have a, a bi-weekly meeting with a psychiatrist, and we would talk about uh, the, a few people who are on, were on retreat and we were um, curious about or worried about. And, um, and uh, I think we tried to be uh, really out about it. That uh, I mean, we are really out about it. I'm not a psychologist. I've not been trained in the clinical psychology and that's not what i offer I, i'm not offering psychology it's a spiritual practice and so uh in my mind these things are 
in order you know like that's that's uh, i uh, i understand how this works you know uh it makes sense to me um yeah so if uh, somebody comes with uh, some t- I mean, and we're getting trained also around this you know um it's, it was part of the four years training meeting with psychologists and learning about uh, uh, the different uh, mental illnesses and things and uh, um and we ask people to disclose this when they come to retreat, you know, and so we can uh, work with it um, in the ways that we know. Um, yeah, it's different. Uh, it's different uh, angles on life. Huh? Um, I see that a lot of psychologists actually uh, come to retreats and classes and want coaching from uh, from uh, this lineage, from this uh, tradition. So this this tools there that I think are uh, are really good and uh, so the, and there's a lot of communication uh, between the different fields. Um, so that's what um, that's what I um, I I can see. Um, I don't know if I have much else to that comes to mind now uh, around this. I wonder if we w- we would want a priest, for example, in the Catholic Church to be a psychologist, if it would make sense. So it's it's kind of uh, related, uh, but different. Yeah, you know, different. Uh, so the, the kind of knowledge that uh, that I've been exposed to is a very ancient, um, you know, um, knowledge. Uh, it's and the way I've learned it is no, it's not through going to university. It's a different approach. It's an old uh, kind of uh, system of apprenticeship, mentorship. Um, tons of hours, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, and it's its own system, and um, uh, yeah, I, actually, it's the it's the first time uh, that I think, uh, as you were in your question, you were saying like uh, that Willoughby. I'm using her first name. I've never met her. <laughs> don't know exactly what uh, her her, her uh, teachings and uh, research and stuff. But it's the first time I hear that uh, there's this. Uh, that Dharma teachers should have maybe a clinical background or something. It's a it's a new thing for me, but yeah. and and it makes sense. I understand how it uh, it would. Uh... I don't want to uh, misrepresent Wilby. I'm not sure that she would actually say that um, explicitly, but I do know um, that she advocates for mental health training yeah. for all uh, teachers of meditation of all kinds. Yeah. Um. I see this conversation about, let's say, sensitivity to mental health as part of a larger conversation about diversity in general. Mm. And I know you sort of alluded to it earlier, um, wanting to stay open to uh, different experiences, um, the way some groups are either seen or not seen and privilege and this and that. Um, yeah. So how, how, how does that enter your practice? Mm-hmm. So the Buddhist teachings... Um are about suffering and the end of suffering that's uh, that's how you know that it would be all about that suffering and the end of suffering 
So part of this, as I was sitting the three, three months or as I practice at home, a really big part of this is uh, the suffering that this system called Pascal, you know, this body, psyche, hormonal, everything <laughs> system, how it creates suffering for itself and how it can, with the same tools of a psyche and a heart and a body, with the same tools, it can create some kind of uh, healing, maybe psychological healing or inner well-being or, um, yeah, something like this. And so a big part of the practice is to sit in, in meditation and in daily life to observe how the second arrow is planted in the heart, you know, uh, by one's own psyche. And so that's a lot of the Buddhist teachings is about this, to see how one creates trouble for oneself, you know, and how we can untangle the tangles of the heart and mind. So that's one aspect. Another aspect of this for me, very, very clear, I have no doubt about this, is that uh, if I think about suffering and the end of suffering, I can see it really clearly that a society is also a system, like Pascal is its own little system, there's a larger system called society at different scales, you know, but let's call it society. Society has in it a lot of tools to create suffering for itself or some members of, uh, uh, you know, of it. And uh, it also has everything uh, there to create healing and support and visibility and uh, and safety and uh, protection and uh, you know um, you know the, it has everything to make people uh, be the best of who they are and uh, you know contribute and so as I'm interested in suffering and the end of suffering so I'm very interested in how um, in a systemic way we create uh, oppression and um and you know uh, how we uh, how we create privilege for some of us how we st start valuing uh in overt and hid hidden or um, hidden for some of us unknown for some of us in ways that uh and so to me that's uh, it requires the same tools so in the sitting practice i learn how to quiet the mind so it can really feel reality instead of being agitated by its preconceived ideas uh, you know uh, how I can slow down and pay attention so that I can see really what's happening in my heart and my mind so what I need is quietness, calm, some kind of st calm, stable mind that is very curious, honest, courageous uh, investigative investigative and so these qualities, I, s I think, are the same that are needed to look at society and how it produces well-being. And, uh, and so it needs what? Uh, to go underneath my ideas that we're all equal. You know, I might say, oh, no, it's all equal. It's all the same, you know. It's like, well, but if I look a little closer, I'll see that we might all be equal in thoughts, but in treatment... It's not exactly what's happening, you know. So I need honesty, I need uh, calm, curiosity. And so for me, mindfulness, teaching mindfulness is giving us the tools to uh, address the issues of uh, sexism, racism, ableism, ageism, uh, fatphobia, transphobia, uh, homophobia, 
you know, all the ways that we elevate some of us and put down some of us. And uh, so I'm interested in that. So I'd, I'd like the, my practice and the teachings that I do to serve that goal of protecting human beings, you know. I'm mindful of the time here, and we're, we've been going for well over an hour. Uh, maybe one final question, if you're not too tired. No, please. Um, this kind of clarity that you have and these habits and skills you've cultivated over many, many years and many, many, many hours of practice, you certainly seem to embody uh, some of what you teach and the well-being seems evident just in looking at you um, but not everybody has time uh, or the values or the interest or for whatever I mean, of course it always becomes a question of choice to some extent like okay I can just spend the next two years on and off long retreats but what do you say to people who want to move in that direction but for whatever reason, can't take that that big bite of uh, of practicing in that way, at least at the beginning. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, required to do like these extensive. Uh, I mean, maybe to to gain like you know some with Ajahn Chah, you know, a f famous uh, revered teacher in this tra tradition said. You know, something like, let go a little and you'll have a little peace. Let go a, lo a lot, you'll have a lot, a lot of peace, peace. And let go completely and you'll experience complete peace. So what I see when I teach uh, classes here in Montreal, people who might never come to retreat or maybe once or once a year, a weekend, you know, that they gain a lot from this practice. That's mainly what I see, you know. Even some people will come for a few months to classes and then they disappear and I m might see them in the street, you know. And and often they're, they'll be thankful, you know, and say, you know, two years ago I, I, I was coming to your classes for a while. You know, it, it was really, really valuable. It had an impact on my mind, you know, and the ways that I live, you know. Um, and so this I see all the time. People will come to one class, you know, and they'll get a little hit of something and I see it in their eyes, you know, and, and they'll linger after sometimes, you know, when class is finished, just to say thank you. And that thank you is not, um, it's personal. They say thank you to Pascal, but it's uh, it's thank you to the the practice and the the view that is presented and the, the technique, the suggestion of just paying attention, not being so faithful to our ideas that this is so important and I want this and I want to get there, you know, and to actually um, abandon this for just a moment and feel what is here. And just in that little thing, a second, I, f I sense that there's a lot there. And, uh, and so it doesn't have to be a big amount. I think, I, th I, th I think there can be an impression in the mind because it's something of quality we're talking about. So it, it leaves an impression and we might forget it but uh, you know Jack Cornfield my teacher was telling this story <laughs> he said you know he met a, a man came to him in the airport somewhere in the United States and said excuse me are you Jack Cornfield and Jack said yes and he said I just want to thank you because uh, 
you know, I practiced with you in 79, you know, like 30 years ago or 20 years ago or something, you know, at that point. And, uh, and he said, I, I just did that weekend and forgot about the whole thing. But last year I had a serious heart problem. And while I was being transported to the hospital and entering the surgery room and all this, I remembered I should maybe just be with the breath and the body laying down, you know, and not, uh, you know, depart in my head about, like, just stay here. I said it made such a difference. I want to thank you. So, you know, there was a 20-year gap of <laughs> not remembering, and still it was valuable that weekend. So that's the, the way I, I see it. That's a lovely story. Um, so how can people practice with you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, there's a website called um, uh, pascalauclair.org. And you can go and see on that website. Mainly what is there is um, the, the teaching schedule of retreats. So you can see the opportunities there and the classes in town. And also there's uh, audio and video uh, teachings. So th these are all ways to, to practice. And yeah, so I'm here and there. You know, it's possible to come in the, uh, the organization we founded uh, here in Montreal is uh, called uh, True North Insight. And uh, it offers a whole, um, you know, catalog of retreats. Uh, with different teachers, all really uh, good uh, teachers in, in this uh, tradition and lineage. And so, you know, if it's not with uh, Pascal, it could be with Daryl or Jean or other teachers that are well-trained. Okay, Pascal, thank you so much for doing this, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Joe. And I, I know your heart is in, in this is very beautiful. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. The purpose of this project is to inspire people to cultivate well-being. The science tells us that well-being is best understood as a series of skills and habits that can be learned and practiced. And I hope listening to these episodes helps you move forward on your own path to well-being. If you enjoy listening to the Mindspace podcast, please share your favorite episodes with friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks a lot. Thank you.